good morning, everybody. It is great to see you indoors here. So glad to have you. Those of you who are choosing to be outdoors, so glad to have all of you out there in the plaza as well and online, uh, as we remind you every week. Uh, many of you we've been in touch with and talking to, uh, many of you are at home uh, because of health reasons and concerns, and we want you to know you are very much a part of Seacoast. We love you. We care about you. Pray for you. If you are watching online, I want to challenge you, or encourage you, I should say, to check, check in. Let us know you're there. You can always go to respond.church. Keep us updated with prayer requests. And uh, we'd love to pray with you and continue to include you in the family of Seacoast. So you are, we are with you. We're glad to have you with us. Um, and I do want to say, so let me put a little bit of a, you know, the pastor hat on for a moment. If you are at home because it is convenient, and I know it is, uh, we, I want to encourage you, if it's not for any health reasons, would you consider coming and, and joining us in person. There's something that happens. Yeah, we want you with us. There's something that happens when we're together, when we can hear each other sing, even through masks. It's not that bad. In fact, here's the benefit of it indoors when singing with masks. There's no coffee breath going on. There's no coffee. You know, there's a little added benefit that I didn't think of. And I was like, this is great. So, um, but no, we, we think something great happens when we're together. And you know, this... Uh, property was purchased by another church back in the 50s, and this building was built in the 60s. And I think in all of its history, I don't think it's ever gone more than a week um, with the doors closed. And we've been six months. And you know, the building is not the holy place without the people. When the people are here, then this God dwells among us. So the building is not a holy place, but I was thinking about it, and in all of those years, in the 60 years that this has been here, think of all the lives who've been transformed and changed in this place. Think of all the people who came in kind of on their, their last, at the end of their rope, thinking like, I just don't have hope, and they had a message of hope given to them. Think of all the people who were baptized, proclaiming their faith right here in this space. Even back in the day, people used to have weddings in churches, young adults, you know, it used to be a thing. And, and think of all the people who got married in this place. In fact, one of our staff members got married in this place uh, years ago. And so this is not a holy place, but it's a special place. And being able to gather together is a special thing. And so, to me, this is a great milestone for us to kind of come back in. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me to talk with the staff the last couple of weeks and say, hey guys, time to clean the house. Uh, we've been, you know, parents have been away a while, so let's get ready for the guests. But we are glad to have you here. You know, we were talking as, as a, a small group this last week. During this last six months, there are new phrases and new things that I have said and we say that I never, they weren't even phrases before, right? And, but they're things that we say, and we were talking about which are the ones that now are normal that we just don't like. One of them that came up is the idea of like moist droplets. I mean, come on. How many of us ever worried about droplets before? And, and now, now that's one of those things like, oh, we got to protect each other from our droplets. And um, another one that was uh, common that came out, like, how about social distancing? Did anyone say that before? The only people that were socially distant before this, they were hermits, right? They were the people going like, no, I'm just social distancing from everybody. But yeah, so that was a new one. How about this one? Unprecedented times. 
Yeah. I don't need to see one more commercial tell me we're living in unprecedented times. Anyone with me? Like, yeah, I get it. No, and, and I don't want to see another commercial that's f- filmed by Zoom either. Like, I don't need to see somebody's, like, go to the store. Don't film it from a cool place, not from your bedroom. But, okay, so that's just me. How about one more? Um, and I've said this. I apologize. The new normal. Yeah, new normal. That's another one that we say. So, I think back of all these, and they kind of can bring up all kinds of different emotions and feelings that we have. Uh, But I was thinking of, you know, it's interesting. We're going through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about the church. And the church starting in a time that was a lot more difficult than the one we're going through. You know, for some of us, we are inconvenienced because we have to wear masks. Or we're inconvenience because we have to sit spaced out and things like that. And, and none of us, I shouldn't say none, m- most of us don't prefer that, right? Most of us don't like that. But really compared to what the church historically has gone through, we have it easy. But I looked at, so the book of Acts, when we look at them, this was truly the church that was living in unprecedented times. This was a church that was moving towards a new normal. And it was even a church that, I don't know how to say it. Would it be, they had like droplets of the Holy Spirit just empowering them. As we look back, this study that we're going through should encourage us as the church today to see that this is not the first time we've ever had inconvenience. Not the first time there's ever been opposition. But the church was started an unstoppable movement that you and I get to be a part of today. So that's what we're going to look at. And that's what we're in the book of Acts. So pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you for today. And I thank you even uh, in a time and a place where maybe this isn't uh, the most convenient, the most comfortable, uh, any of those things that most of us would never ask for. But Lord, it's where we are. But Lord, I thank you that this does not stop who you are. It doesn't stop what you want to do. It doesn't stop your church from moving forward. So God, today, I ask that you'd speak to us and you'd encourage us and lead us forward as a church. In your name, amen. So as we look at this, uh, in the book of Acts, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1. One of the things that we as a leadership here have been really praying about and thinking about is because it's been really six months since we've, we've been meeting outdoors for the last two months, two and a half months, um, but not indoors, and we are convinced it is time to be moving forward. We're going to move forward with health concerns and and safety on our minds and and walking with love with one another um, in all of the different uh, perspectives. But as we move forward, we know that God is calling us to his mission and that has not stopped. And so you'll be hearing in the the weeks and months ahead, but I'm actually really excited. Some of the vision stuff we talked about last May, we decided it's time to keep moving, keep pressing forward. Uh, We have a a commitment this year as we're really praying about of, of God, how can we do better with our community outreach, reaching the Spanish-speaking community that we're embedded in here, and we have some really exciting things that we're moving forward with that this year. Uh, How can we do better and continue to improve with our youth and reach our youth? In fact, It's been really fun for me to see this last few weeks. Most of our students are doing distant learning this year, at least to this point. And uh, twice a week, our junior high and high school ministry have a thing called Seacoast Homeroom. And they have a 
classrooms with the students spaced out, kind of working on their distant learning, but at least being able to see one another. It's been really cool to see uh, just uh, the students kind of experience a little bit of that life. So we're committed to the next generation. We're going to keep moving forward. And that's what really we see in the church, the first church, moving forward, even in times that were difficult. In fact, we looked at last week just a few things that we'll see. I just want to remind you of a few of the themes. The book of Acts often talks about the message of Christianity, which is focused on the risen Jesus. It mattered that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that was part of the message of Christianity. It was always showing that, hey, this wasn't just some wise teacher or someone to follow. This was someone who is Lord because he rose. It confirmed who he was. Uh, so it was a message of Christianity. Last week, we looked at the idea of the mission of Christianity. Jesus called us to go and make disciples in Jerusalem, which meant right in your hometown, to the ends of the earth. And the mission was this growing church that went to the ends of the earth. Uh, We talked about the people in Christianity. And the people, we saw this inclusive community that was unlike any other, where men and women were invited in, and Jew and Gentile, and the religious and the non-religious, all were welcome to the table that Jesus paved a way for all people. And we'll see that come up time and again. And finally, all of that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nearly every story we're going to see, we are reminded of the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are some of the things we're going to look at. And at every turn, the church was an unstoppable movement. So Acts chapter 1, that was a little bit of last week. Uh, this week, we're going to jump in. If you'd like to take notes, we handed out, uh, we have these life journals available for you. And so grab your life journal. If you want one, uh, we have them on the tables in the back. And this is for those of you who want to take notes, bring it up in your life group uh, through your, throughout the week as you do your devotionals. If you do that, um, this is a great tool to use, and it's our gift to you on the back tables. So Acts chapter 1, this is how it starts. And uh, last week, where we left off is Jesus gave them a mission, said, go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he left them. And here we are in verse 12. Said, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. This means the Mount of Olives, which was near Jerusalem. It was a Sabbath day journey away. A Sabbath day journey uh, was about three quarters of a mile to a mile. So because if you have ever been to Jerusalem, you'll see Mount of Olives is actually right connected to the old city. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Elpheus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So what we have here at the very beginning is Luke is the author, and he says, look, here's the setting. The disciples, first he mentions the 11. These 11 were part of Jesus' original 12, who he invited to be his 12 representatives. Uh, We believe that he chose the number 12 because that uh, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was symbolic for a new community he was forming. But so he mentions the 11 who are left, Judas, Uh, Iscariot betrayed Jesus. uh, Jesus. We're going to see that in a moment and actually was no longer alive. So there's 11 left, but then there's many more disciples they mention. He says, along with the women. Now here's the first picture again of the inclusive nature of the community of Christ. There was women disciples. Now some of you might say, well, that's not very nice. You just called them the women. Trust me, in first century, this was revolutionary to say the women were included as equals in this family. They were invited into it. 
And even on a weekend where here in our country, uh, Chief Justice uh, Ginsburg passed away. And you don't have to agree with all of her politics. I don't agree with all of her perspectives. But one thing she did, and she did well, is she really fought for the rights of women and, and equality and all of that. And so that is something to be honored. And what's cool is that's in the tradition that Jesus started. It's a biblical principle to say we value you and your gender doesn't make you less valuable than the other. And we see that here in the book of Acts. Now, notice who else is there? Mary, the mother of Jesus, who all along knew there was something special about him. If you know her story, how could she not be convinced? But then we have Jesus' brothers. The last time we heard about Jesus' brothers, they were sitting outside of a house saying, uh, we don't, I, don't, I don't know about this guy. I don't know that he is who he says he is. I mean, we've seen him. We've shared a room with him. We've seen him cheat at Monopoly. I mean, seriously, this guy, he thinks he's the Messiah? That's the last time we heard of him. And now, look, they're included in the disciples. Their lives were transformed. In fact, we know that James, the brother of Jesus, goes on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. So even in his own family, there's this transformation. So the picture here is that here is that community of God. Here is that community that's being changed because of Jesus. And they're all together devoting themselves to prayer. And verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 uh, we're there together. So again, there's quite a few going on here. And I want you just to see a few things. One, they're gathered together. And you might think, okay, is this all, is this like one prayer meeting? Is this multiple days? We don't really know. But uh, they're in, we think, somewhere in the old city. Uh, and you'd say, that's a lot of people to be in a room. Um, it probably is. It may not have all been in the same space at this time, but I, I want to show you, this is a rendering of an archae- archaeological remains of a house um, that is in the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, you can see that there's, this was obviously a wealthy family. This was not a peasant one. But where they're describing of the part of the city, this is what a lot of the homes look like. And even all the way down to the frescoes there, we uh, have evidence, archaeological remains, it's still there where there's some of the pigment in the stucco inside these rooms. So that is probably very accurate to the decoration that went in these houses, which is pretty cool. So you can see there's, there's some sizable houses there that they could have very well been gathered in. And we know that some of the very first disciples of Jesus were wealthy Pharisees and uh, priests who lived in this region of Jerusalem, people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So likely it's in a house kind of like that. So they're gathered together. Now I want to show you, this is the first thing, and, and today what we're going to see is Three ideas that the church was doing that are a model for us today. When God calls us to mission, I want you to see, and the first one is here. Notice what they did. is They devoted themselves to prayer. And the first thing we see, that prayer prepares the heart. Prayer prepares the heart. Now, notice what happened. Jesus gave them a mission, and the first thing they did was gather together to pray. Now, when I get a mission or an idea of something I want to accomplish, or even in the church, What's the first thing we usually do in the Western world? We say, okay, what do we want to accomplish? What's it going to take? What is the strategy? What are the programs? What's the website look like? What's our Instagram? How are we going to promote this? Let's get it going. And the first church, they didn't even get to the website yet. They sat time, and their first thing they did is they devoted themselves to prayer. And they said, we need to be in tune with what God wants to do. 
So prayer is a thing, though, that prepares your heart. So this is different than thinking that prayer twists God's arm. They didn't go to prayer to say, okay, God, here's what we need you to do for us. It was, let's pray so that we can be in tune with what God wants to do with us. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher and Christian, said it this way, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer does not change God, but it changes the one who prays. Something happens when we pray that it actually changes us and changes our perspective. The Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel says it this way, speaking of prayer. He says, we do not step out of the world when we pray. We merely see the world in a different setting. The self is no longer the hub, but only the spoke in a revolving wheel. Prayer takes the mind out of the narrowness of self-interest and enables us to see the world in the mirror of the holy. For when we betake ourselves to the extreme opposite of ego, we can behold a situation from the aspect of God. In other words, what he's saying, when we pray, we get ourselves to the extreme opposite of ego. In other words, so much that's no longer just about me, what I want, what I think, what should happen. This is no longer, I'm now taking myself to the extreme opposite of ego, and now I can see the situation from the aspect of God. And that's what prayer does. It helps us to actually start to see things differently. And so the church models that for us. It's a model for, I think, not just personal life, but the corporate life. Of begin with prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, let's continue reading on. So they're devoting themselves to prayer. Peter stands up in verse 16 and says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. So David is, or Peter's starting off and saying, hey, there was prophecies. Don't be surprised that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, don't, don't be surprised that he betrayed us and led the, uh, the, uh, the priests or led the Romans to capture Jesus. This was foretold by David, and he's referring to Psalm chapter 69 and saying this was going to happen. So we knew this was going to happen. And Judas, in verse 17, was counted among us. He was a part of this ministry, yet he did this. Now, verse 18, it's a little graphic, so let me just but read it. Now, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. In falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. This is one of the verses when I was a, a, a little, you know, like a younger kid in elementary school, and I had to go to Sunday school. If we read verses like this, I was like, okay, I'll listen today. That's, I'm, I'm, you got my interest. So, but yeah, and it goes on. It says, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called Hakel Dama, that is the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. In other words, replace him. Therefore, it is necessary, Peter said, that of the men who accompanied us all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and, out, in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up, one of those who's been with us must become a witness with us on the resurrection. So what he's really saying is, okay, Jesus had an inner circle of 12 disciples. 
But prophecy predicted that one would betray him and that that person would be replaced. And that person's being replaced. So Peter says, so we need to replace him and let's choose someone who's been with us all along. Now, here's the cool thing is we have 120 people in this room. What he's indicating is that some of those other people had been following Jesus from the very beginning. They just were never part of designated as the original 12. They'd been following him, learning from him, watching the miracles. They witnessed his death and resurrection. So he said, among those who've been with us from the beginning, we're going to choose someone to replace Judas. So we see the next thing that happened, a model for us of how to behave. It started with prayer prepares a heart. The next thing we see here by the church is this. Scripture sets the borders. What I mean by that, notice what Peter was saying. We, we saw these things happen as a fulfillment of Scripture, and Scripture says that we need to replace this person, so that's what we should do. And Scripture set the borders of their life. Now, that didn't mean that everything they did, they said, okay, where does it say in the Bible to do this? Because there was new situations coming up, but where in the Bible, or, or the Bible, the Scriptures used, they set the borders, said we don't want to be out of step with what God has commanded. So as prayer prepares our heart, Scripture sets our borders. Never should we come out of a time of prayer where we say, you know, I'm going to do something, and you find out it's totally contrary to what Scripture says. And the first church, we're going to see this, modeled throughout the book of Acts, as they kept looking at what, it, what happened in Scripture. How does it fulfill? How are we living in accordance to what God has given us? The Bible scholar Skip Mean says this about Scripture. He says, the biblical view of lo- is of life is saturated with God. The Bible is not a book about man's relationship with God. It is a book about God's self-revelation to men, and it comes with God's perspective on every aspect of living. So we find in Scripture, we find God's perspective on every aspect of living. Now, there are obviously situations that come up that the Scripture doesn't talk about. It never talks about coronavirus and should you wear a mask or not. That's not in Scripture. But what does it talk about? It talks about how to love one another. It talks about how to be willing to give up of your rights for the good of another. It talks about, uh, about willing to not always get your way out of love. So I actually think that Scripture does talk about coronavirus and masks. And we can have all kinds of different perspectives on it and different beliefs about uh, of how effective a mask is, how it isn't, is the is virus real, is it not? All of those things, you can have all those perspectives and, and we're not going to have agreement. Trust me, we're not. I've heard from you, we're not. But what we can agree on is that we are called to love and care for one another and it doesn't matter what I want, it is what I can do to love you. Yes, while we sing indoors, we're wearing masks. It is not my favorite thing to do. But the church across the globe has put, puts up with far more inconveniences than masks. I can't imagine a church in persecuted China where they say, if you ever have more than 100 people, we're going to come after you. If you said you're going to have to wear masks in church, if they ever went like, well, that's it, I'm not going again. There's such a joy to be together. And out of love, they would do it. Out of love, we do this for one another. Scripture sets those borders for us. And it's difficult. You know, even within Seacoast, you know, we're, uh, we have some partnerships and friendship, relationship with the mayor of our city here, one of our county supervisors in San Diego. 
We also uh, have someone at Seacoast who actually works as, as a county attorney, so close up in uh, or high in government right here in our local government. As a church, we may not agree with every decision any of our policymakers are making, but you know what we should be doing? We should be praying for them. We should be loving them. We should even be feel free to send an email and say, you know what? I just want you to know that I care about you. I love you. I may not agree with everything, but just know I'm praying for you for wisdom and protection and health. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of our lawmakers, even ones we don't agree with, had an idea of Christians and said, you know what? I know they don't all agree with everything I say, that we think or say or do, but man, I love those people because they care. Wouldn't that be great? I don't think that's what they all would say right now. We can change that narrative. Scripture gives us those borders. You might say, that's hard. That's, that's a hard life to live. Yep, <laughs> it is. And I'm guilty as any of you. Some of the emails I've created in my head have not been as loving as I just told you. <laughs> I haven't sent them, but I've created in my head, and it's a challenge for me to remember to be loving and caring, even for those who disagree. Now, we're going to take a little side note here, because Peter just talked about Judas dying, and this is for those of you who like to dig a little deeper in Scripture. I want to just take a couple minutes to show you something, because it would be in, uh, if I just skipped over this, it wouldn't be intellectually honest. There's two parts in Scripture that talk about the death of Judas. One is right here, and the other one's in Matthew chapter 27, and they say different things. And I want to point that out and just mention it to you because when you're reading scripture on your own, there may be times when you read something that sounds like a contradiction. And some things are contradictions. You say, wait, how does, how does that work? Now, sometimes that might be because there was a, a, an error in how they recorded it. That often, if that happens, it's often a, a grammatical or a number or something like that. But you want to ask yourself a few questions when there's a contradiction. One is, does one statement directly oppose the other? For example, if one of the Gospels said Jesus rose from the dead and another writer said Jesus did not rise from the dead, that would be a direct contradiction and we would have a problem, okay? Now, if one says Jesus rose from the dead and the other one doesn't say anything about his resurrection, that's curious but not a contradiction, okay? You tracking with me on that? So you want to say, okay, is one directly opposing the other? Another thing you want to ask is, is there something about the author or the audience that causes him or her to write it differently? Is there something about the situation that causes one writer to write it differently than the other? And it might be because, for example, Matthew was a tax collector and Matthew was an accountant. Okay, you accountants, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but any of you who know accountants, when they describe things, sometimes they include details and in, in, in ideas that someone who's doing a historical work or a doctor, in the case of Luke, that they would not include. So you have two different types of people writing this, and so you want to say, well, what is it about their perspective that why they wrote it differently? Or the audience. Sometimes a book is written to a, a particularly Jewish audience where they had all these other things in their mind than as opposed to a non-Jewish audience that wouldn't understand the references, okay? So you want to ask that question too. And then you always want to ask, are there other passages that give us greater understanding? And know that sometimes you're going to have to live with some tension. 
There are things I read in scripture. There's still stuff that I look at and say, Lord, why don't you just erase that? That is confusing. I don't like that. And we're going to live with some tension. But I want to show you the Matthew and Acts versions of Judas. I'm going to go through these quickly. If you're a note taker, write Matthew on one side, Acts on the other, and I'm going to show you the differences. Matthew says the priests used Judas's money to purchase the field. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, said Judas acquired the field. So, is that a contradiction? Well, what we know in first century, um, Judas, the priest gave him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He felt guilty. He threw it at them, gave it back, said, I don't want your money, and left. According to Jewish law and tradition, that money was still Judas's money. It was blood money. The priest could not receive it. They couldn't take it. So it was still Judas's money. They took that money and bought the plot of land where he died. So, in first century language, Judas acquired the field. The priest bought it, but Judas acquired it. That's one possible explanation. So, do those directly contradict? Not necessarily. Because it, it says Judas acquired a field, doesn't say how he did. So, we know somehow there, that, that, that could, that's plausible. Next one is this. Judas hung himself. In the book of Matthew, in the book of Acts, he falls headlong and bursts open. This is quite a graphic. That's a nice description. Now, do they directly contradict themselves? In Acts, it doesn't necessarily say how he died. It just says he falls headlong and bursts open. This is one possible explanation. Tradition is Judas hung himself, and he hung himself as the beginning of the Sabbath, his body would have been left there for at least a day, maybe longer. Now, I'm not a physician, but I did used to work on a farm, and I know what animals look like when they're outside, not alive, for a couple days. I'm trying to keep this, like, not as... <laughs> so if you picture that happening, and the body is now cut down or falls from the place where it was hanging, and I'll show you in a moment what we think that area looked like. Probably over a cliff, it falls. It can likely burst open. So, can these two work together? They can. In both cases, they say the field is now called the field of blood in Acts and in Matthew. Now, here's a photo I want to show you. This is what today in Jerusalem they call the field of blood. Um, this is right outside. The slide here is right outside of um, the old city of Jerusalem. And it's rumored that Judas hung himself somewhere on the top of the cliff. And on the bottom, it's called the field of blood. And it's, the prophecy says, let no one dwell there. If you ever have seen Jerusalem or the old city, it is built up everywhere. But it's not built up here in the Hinnom Valley. And particularly in this place where it's a field of blood. Um, and there is uh, some tombs that had, were started about the first century in this area. It is traditionally the area of field of blood. We don't know if it's the exact spot, but traditionally it is all the way back. So the story you can look at and say, okay, plausible. Okay, track with me. So those of you who love to go a little deeper on that, those, those are the nerdy things that I'm like, this is so cool. Um, that's the way my mind works. Now let's get back to the text, okay? All right, here we go. So let's finish up for today. So... He's replacing Judas with a new disciple, and we see in verse 23, they put forward two people, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry of apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
And they drew lots for him, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So here's what happened. They said, we're going to pick a new disciple. They had two people that they thought were qualified. They'd been with him all along. They put their names on probably little stones. Often the lots looked like, uh, when they cast lots, they were like the size, maybe a little bigger of like a domino. So these square things, they wrote the names on them, put them in a bag, dumped out whichever one came out first. That was the name. And they said, okay, it's Matthias. He's the new disciple. Not how Jesus did it, but how they did it. Now, you might ask, isn't that kind of like divination or is that like magic or voodoo that they're doing? This is actually representing their total trust in God's hand at work. They prayed. They saw this was in fulfillment with scripture. And they said, whatever name comes out, we're going to trust that it's God's choice. Because we believe that if God is in control, that he can even cause this name to be the one he wants. We saw this happen in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was running from God. He was on a boat, a ship filled with people who were not followers. And they said, someone in here, God's mad at someone on our boat. Let's cast lots and find out who it is. They cast lots and whose name came out? Jonah's. (laughs) Now, they weren't doing anything. They weren't praying. It wasn't godly, but God directed that moment to show them who he was after. So what we find here is the final point. The first one was that prayer prepares our heart. Scripture sets borders, and the final one is actions follow faith. They believed God was sovereign. They believed he was in control. They believed he was going to guide this moment, and so when he did, they trusted, they believed, and stepped out in faith. They didn't say, well, let's do that again. (laughs) We didn't really want Matthias. Has anyone ever do that before? I'm going to reach into this hat, whichever restaurant we go to tonight, and that's where we go. You pick it out, you're like, let's do that again. (laughs) They didn't do that. They said, okay, if God directed this name, that's the name. Actions follow faith. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up and, and help us end our time. But as we end... I want to challenge us as a church to use these things as the model for how we live our daily lives and our life as a church. We want to be a church that's moving forward. We want to be a church that's helping people discover life in Christ. It has to start with prayer, preparing our own hearts. God, what are you up to? Letting scripture set our borders. What is the posture of, what does it look like to be people in your image? That's why I use that example of what it means to love one another radically, selfless. And finally, step out in faith. Let's be a church that says, God, that is scary. But let's go. Let's go. Let's move forward. And we're going to be telling you in the weeks and months ahead some of the things we believe God is calling us to. And even, as I said, in the season of coronavirus, we decided this is not the time to just keep waiting. God's saying, I'm moving forward. This church is an unstoppable movement, and I want to reach more and more for my name. And so we'll let you know how that looks in the weeks ahead, but I want to encourage you, let's be a church. Let's praying for one another, praying together, and moving forward. Let's pray as we end our time here and move into this last song. God, we thank you so much again for today. I thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that um, even in the times when we fail you, the times, Lord, when we fall short, that you meet us in that place. 
Lord, I even thank you in the story of Acts. I see people who are just like me, people who had doubts, people who had questions, people who didn't always get the answers right, yet, Lord, you guided them and you led them and you began this new unstoppable movement. So, Lord, would you guide our hearts? Would you make us in tune and aware of your spirit? Shape us and change us and mold us today, Lord. Let us as individuals and as a church boldly and faithfully follow you.